Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Leonard C. Spitali titled Victorine DuPont, The Force Behind the Family, published by University of Delaware Press. Leonard Spitali, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. So... What inspired you to write a biography of Victorine DuPont? I can uh, almost picture the uh, the day. My wife and I, we're from New England originally, and um, I had retired the year before. This was uh, 09. And um, we were exploring the area. The Hagley Museum and Library is only 15 minutes from where we live, but we had never been there. So we said, well, let's go make a day of it. And uh, First time we ever visited. It's beautiful. Have you ever visited that? Uh, no, I've never been there. Well, now I have yeah, to go. You do. It's a. Uh, it's on like 235 acres. You hear the name Hagley Museum and Library, and you think of a building. But this is where the actual Dupont Company got started. It's the. It's the original site of the Dupont story. The family home is there. Uh, the rolling mills, uh, outbuildings, the machine shop. And uh, on the property is this Sunday school building that was built to be a Sunday school. And it's, it was such an anomaly. Like, what is this doing on the grounds of an industrial mill workers uh, uh, site, you know? And uh, they have uh, interpreters there, um, what some people call docents, and they're volunteers. And they, uh, so there was a guy there when my wife and I came to the Sunday school building and he's telling about um, how it was how it um, was actually the locus of education in that entire area. There were no schools, there were no churches, and this building was used to any child that could get there on a Sunday morning um, would be taught how to read, spell, write, and learn the basics of Christianity. Um, so it was really a, a where they where children had a chance to become literate. Um, most of the mill workers' children uh, had no access to schools, uh, couldn't afford them if they had them. Uh, and so that was the story. Uh, beautiful building, um, one-room schoolhouse. There were replicas of the desks there and the uh, tall walls. In the window well of one was a, uh, a picture of a seated woman in a frame on black and white copy paper. You know, it really uh, was just uh, put up there. And so I asked, who that person was. And uh, he said, well, that was Victorine Duplat. He said um, she was the oldest child of Eleuthera Irene Dupont and Sophie Madeline Dupont. The, he's the father and the founder of the company and her, and her mother. And uh, she uh, was widowed very shortly after her marriage. And she taught here at the Sunday school. And Jane, those were the four points. That's all he knew about her. And I came to find out later, that's all pretty much most people know. 
those four points, her name, her position as the eldest child, uh, that she was widowed early and that um, she taught at the Sunday school. On that very day, that's that, but those four items were enough to stir my curiosity. So I went down to the gift shop afterwards thinking there was a book on her, no book. I, I went online, no biography, nothing. Uh, and uh, so I volunteered, I, I, the volunteer, he, he said, you know, they're looking for volunteers. And I said, you mean I could do what you're doing? He says, yeah, I'd love to have people here. Well, it was like the volunteer coordinator met me before we even left. And my wife is watching this whole thing with her mouth open. She, she's going, what? You're doing what? <laughs> you know, it was just, we were just visiting and I wind up volunteering there. <laughs> and uh, that was the spark that got me going. Uh, oh, I discovered that's great. That, yeah. So that's great, you know. So there, so the there are books about the Duponts, but nothing ever that looked at her specifically. No, in fact, most of the books uh, have been about the men and the company. Um, very, very little about the women, and really, there's more to be found about the ladies in this family. Uh, some wonderful stars are just waiting to be. Uh, I encourage anybody, uh, and the and the and and their correspondence is there, you know. So. Yeah, so talk a little was, bit about the research journey, right? So now you're, you're inspired, you've seen this place that's right near your house that's so interesting and that this woman has been overlooked, that she has no book written on her. So then how do you start writing a book about her? Well, now that I'm a volunteer, and, and really, Jane, I had no, uh, there, the idea of writing her biography was the furthest thing from my mind. I just wanted information that I could convey to the visitors because you can go different ways uh, in that building. You can talk about the workers, you can talk about the business, you can talk about um, early uh, 19th century life in a mill workers community, or you can talk about the people because it depends on the visitor's interest, you know? So I wanted to have information. And now that I'm a volunteer, I, I feel this onus to get, get what I'm saying correct, you know? Uh, and so I found out that the manuscript and archives had uh, her letters there, and uh, not just a few letters, but hundreds of letters, mm. four pages long, because they use those tall pieces of paper and they folded them in half, and you get essentially four long pages of their letters. Um, and so I was like, wow, this is great to actually be holding in your hands uh, the interest of uh, you know the person that you're interested in talking about. So that's how I got so started. How did, so did anybody... Um... Did were they? Uh, did you have to kind of transcribe them from the handwriting to? Did you work with it that way? Yeah, the staff at the manuscript and archives, in fact, and and at the library, the two separate buildings, extremely helpful and friendly. Uh, um, yeah, I could. What tell would we do without the librarians? I mean, yeah, none of this oh. would get done. Yeah, and uh, yeah. I could tell a whole story there, but there were people there who was one girl, woman, especially at the time. She's since uh, passed away, Lynn Ann Catanese. She wrote the uh, Women's History, uh, a guide for the manuscripts at Hagley. What's there for about the women? So she would, that book should be the first stop for anybody investigating uh, what's there, how much is there. Um, and uh, my biggest challenges in the research was. Um, there was no template for her life. You know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about her. 
Uh, fortunately, her letters are in chronological order. The challenge is, is that half of them roughly are undated because they use letters just to send to the house next door. You know, uh, it was their early form of texting, you know. Uh, and so there was a lot of letters. But thanks to the internet uh, and the ability to not only search a time and a year, uh, but to match a date, you know, with a day of the week. And so I had days of the week and being able to follow the events, I was, I was actually able to pinpoint dates and letters that had no dates because I knew that it had to be the next day of a certain situation, you know. And, uh, oh yeah, so that, that's great. That so you a, had to be a little bit of a detective, right? You kind of had to back oh, into the to the chronology. Yeah, I, I, and because I didn't know what I didn't know, I also didn't know what I didn't need. And so I wound up, I took a page of every single, I took a picture of every single page so that I wasn't having to go to the archives every single day. I wound up taking a picture of every one of her letters. Uh, and there's four pages to each letter. But I would take them, but now that I had them at home, I could blow them up, uh, especially places where, you know, they, they just scribbled and, you, you know, you needed the help. Uh, so I had them all at home. Uh, in a way, I had almost too much material, but because I didn't know what I would need, the first draft of the book actually was twice as long as it is today uh, because I had so much information. And I began to uh, transcribe into print the salient points of every letter. It didn't matter what the topic was, whether it was plants or pets or people or poetry, things going on in history. I put them all in their categories and just said, so that I could do a search on that name to get that particular subject because I didn't know what I needed. You know? Right, and you have to find a way to organize it all because there's so much. And in order for you to kind of, even to not have to keep backtracking over the same letters over and over again, right? You had to come up with some system for yourself. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm in it, the same boat. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes several systems. <laughs> That's yeah. what gets scary. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you write such a beautiful narrative, really, that weaves her story, her family's story, and the story of the world together. Yeah, I have to fit that in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so the DuPont family kind of provides the background for your book. So who, you know, just in case anybody's listening does has never heard of the DuPonts, you know, can you tell a little bit about who they are? Yeah, sure. As a matter of fact, uh, when I finally submitted the uh, the manuscript to um, uh, UD Press, I had to go through what they call peer reviewing. <laughs> and uh, I'm not an academic. I'm just a person who is very interested in uh, writing and in this particular story. And so the peer review process was uh, was really, it was good. It was tedious and rigorous, but uh, it made it a better book. <clears throat> but one of the things they commented on is they, I had the family starting in France where the story begins. But one of the peer reviewers said, well, everybody knows that story. Just start with their story later. And having been an interpreter at the Sunday school, everybody doesn't know the story. And so I felt it really important that we start the story in France. Uh, and with the, especially with the grandfather, the DuPonts go back to the 1500s, the early 1500s. They can trace their family back to a, a man whom they don't know his given name, but they know that he had three sons. And from that 
from that beginning, the DuPonts trace their genealogy. So the family breaks into the three branches from those two. When it gets to Pierre Samuel in, um, in the middle of the 18th century, he's really the, he's really the force behind the company. He uh, was a, um, it's hard to describe him. He was, a, he was a statesman, he was a philosopher, he was an economist. Uh, he was a, uh, a I think of him teacher. too, like, you know, he's really a man of that era in French history because so many of the great thinkers of France of the 18th century had talents in so many areas. I think of like somebody like Voltaire you know, uh, and this math and you, you know, people yeah. who knew math and, and philosophy and, 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 and I love the way you connect her personality to his. Yeah, yeah. Intellectually, they're both uh, prodigious. They're both, uh, he thought, the grandfather thought Victorine was most like him when it came to uh, intellectual curiosity. His name was Pierre Samuel. He was the son of a watchmaker named Samuel. He's the one who attaches De Nemours to the family name because he was in the Constituent Assembly during the, uh, the early days of the revolution. And um, he did not favor the overthrow of the monarchy, but he thought it should become a constitutional monarchy. And because he was part of the Constituent Assembly, he thought that when the revolution was getting worse, he would be in no trouble, but all they tied him to was the monarchy, not the fact that he wanted a constitutional monarchy. And so he was branded as a loyalist and he was in prison. And uh, I've got a line in there that if uh, Robespierre had not first lost his head, Pierre Samuel would have lost his. Right, right. Yeah, because it was dangerous no matter what's, you know, depending on who happened to have taken control during the reign of terror or whatever, that, that these people were prominent enough to draw attention to themselves. Yeah, and they were, anybody that was tied to the monarchy in any way uh, was suspect. And, and Pierre Samuel had served in Louis XVI's court uh, as his uh, Minister of Commerce. He worked with Turgot, um, and he knew all, he knew everybody. Yeah. Uh, he was a friend of Voltaire, they wrote each other. And he embraced the enlightenment with uh, both hands. He, he was a, a product of it and he was a contributor to it, I think. And, um, and so his family, the family was actually a French Protestant background. They were Huguenots. Uh, there was a smattering of Roman Catholics uh, here and there as was um, uh, Victorine's father's mother. Uh, he actually had to, uh, uh, when uh, Pierre Samuel was gonna marry his wife, the father was very Roman Catholic and he insisted that the man not be a Protestant, but he asked uh, Pierre Samuel that question, are you a Protestant? And by that time he had renounced both Protestantism and Catholicism. So he answers, no, I'm not a Protestant. <laughs> and so, the, <laughs> so the father let him marry his daughter, assuming that he was a Catholic. Uh, but at first he really had uh, distanced himself like many of the Enlightenment philosophers from uh, a biblical kind of faith. And it, comes, and it really comes into the story because it really is part of her spiritual journey is connected to the family's beliefs and their origins um, yes. all yeah. the way through. So, yeah. So it's interesting. So how do they make their money? Well, he, the, the grandfather 
um, was doing pretty well in terms, he, he actually tutored a prince's son uh, from another country. And uh, he just had a lot of irons in the fire, but he, he loved to write. His, his writings are voluminous. There's autobi he wrote an autobiography, started it while he was in prison. Uh, he wrote on uh, commerce. He was part of a group of uh, economists known as the physiocrats, um, which included the elder Mirabeau, the uh, Tergio, um, several of them. And they were really a little group, but very influential. Uh, there's a whole story there that got cut out of the book, but I had, you had to taper it down to just the how it affected the family. So anyways, he had connections to make a long story short. And when the revolution heated up, uh, he pulled out in the middle, was getting, uh, he, he had to escape when, they, uh, when it really turned into the violent part of the, the revolution. And it was heating up even more. The reign of terror uh, began um, within a year after Victorine was born. Victorine was born in the middle of the revolution in Paris. Uh, but they moved her and the family to uh, Pierre Samuel's estate in a town called Bois des Fosses, um, about 60 miles southeast of uh, Paris. Um, he had to escape there. They eventually arrest him there. Um, he he uh, gets out of, uh, during that time, before it got difficult, he had started a publishing company, a printing company in Paris. And that was really doing well. Uh, but when he had to escape, it was left to his son, Irénée. His name was Eliothère Irénée Dupont. He preferred to be called Irénée, so that's probably how I'll refer to him um, at that point. His name was, the father picked his name. Eliothère means um, uh, uh, freedom. And Irénée is the Greek word for peace. And so you could see his father's influence in naming his son. Um, and the other son was named Victor, after whom Victorine was uh, named. But Eleuthera winds up um, as a member of the National Guard, so he's not suspected by the revolutionaries as a problem. He's actually part of the National Guard at night, uh, and he's working at the publishing company during the day. But anyways, when everything collapsed, um, uh, Pierre comes back, starts... Uh, realizes that it's getting uh, to the heat's up. And so the revolution really drives them from the country. Pierre, I don't think ever really want, he loved Paris. He loved being in the thick of politics, um, but it was time to leave. And so he, he got some investors together. He knew several key people and said, I'm gonna start a company called uh, The Father and His Sons uh, uh, in French. And, um, and uh, we're gonna move to America. And we've got six or seven projects in mind. One was an export-import com company. One was uh, land development. Uh, he had a dream uh, called Pontiana, where he could exercise his physiocratic principles. And he had really hoped to do that. But one by one, all those projects collapsed. But Irene worked at the um, powder works under Antoine Lavoisier, the famous French chemist. And um, it was Lavoisier who was uh, kind of mentoring him in this uh, powder works trajectory. Uh, but when everything fell apart, um, Lavoisier loses his head during the revolution. And, um, but Irene now has all this 
gunpowder making or black powder making uh, expertise. Uh, so he suggested it to the father that it'd be one of the projects. The father was very reluctant at first because he thought it was too risky financially. Um, but they added project number eight to the list. And in the end, to make a long story short, it was project number eight that became the DuPont company that we know today. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, you know, this, uh, I love the way this book, um, you, you intersect with people like Lavoisier and we're going to talk about like, you know, the Marquis Lafayette and yeah. all these fantastic people. And I love when biographies you, you see you, all these famous people walk through the story and it's, it's so much fun to, to recognize them. So yeah. they wind up in Delaware. How do they wind up in Delaware? Originally, um, and you being a New Jerseyan would appreciate this, they wound up settling in Bergen Point, uh, which is right across the bay from, uh, I guess, Manhattan. And, uh, and a, a preliminary party had left France earlier uh, to get things ready. Um, the family, the bulk of the family uh, leaves in uh, in the late fall of 1799. Uh, uh, and um, so the lead family, uh, uh, part of the family, uh, got a place at Bergen Point. Victor moves into New York City to establish the New York branch of the company uh, and the headquarters. Um, they're there for two years. Victor, uh, Victor's business fails. Uh, he, he, he goes into... Uh, out into the Genesee area of New York to start a general store out in the, which was the wilderness at that time. It doesn't do well at that, but uh, we don't know that yet. So, uh, but now really everything, all the, all the chips essentially are now on the powder company. Um, he meets, uh, while he's there, he meets this uh, man named Toussard, who was a, a artillery expert uh, in France and he too had fled and he became part of Washington's army. A very uh, instrumental in the New Jersey battles, um, and uh, but he loses his arm, I think, in one of the battles in New Jersey. But Toussard was familiar with powder making uh, companies in the Pennsylvania, New York area, and he takes uh, Irene around to them. And Irene just can't believe how primitive the American powder works are. They're working on. Uh, plans that the Dutch used 50 years before them. And he just couldn't, he said, he told his father, if, you know, if we do black powder, we could really make a profit here because the Americans just do not have a handle on the way powder could be made. Um, and so they moved to, uh, he, he, he explores some sites down in the federal city, Washington, D.C. Uh, area along the Potomac. He needed water and he knew that. Um, and he uh, decides to spend a day in Wilmington, and I put in the book that that was a, that day in Wilmington set the trajectory for the DuPonts for the next 200 years. He winds up meeting a man named Pierre Baudouis, who had anglicized his name to Peter Baudouis, and uh, Peter Baudouis was, uh, he was a man of many talents. He was an architect, he was, a, he could paint, he started, he was part of the group that started uh, um, the first waterworks in Wilmington. Uh, but anyways, he was very connected. And, um, and so he sees the potential in uh, uh, Irene's proposal. And the two men at the very, at the very beginning, uh, 
really uh, rely on each other. Um, I've talked to some of the Baudouin descendants and they, they experience a little frustration that uh, their Baudouin's contributions were a little bit uh, overshadowed by the ultimate fame of the DuPont company, but there's no denying that he was very instrumental in getting uh, Irene settled there. You know, it's interesting too, like the, uh, you can see from your story that there was an entire community of French expatriates and, and French people who all supported each other, worked together, knew each other. And uh, the school that Victorine goes to initially is the, the, French, uh, the French school. So it's very interesting how it really talks a lot about how we don't know that much about American history and the, and the French contribution to settling the, in the early part of the Republic. Uh, Jane, the French contribution uh, uh, was significant, especially because the people that fled during the revolution were usually the, uh, the professionals, uh, doctors, scientists. They fled the country in droves because they were suspected to be tied to the monarchy. Yeah. Uh, Napoleon later recognizes what a loss they hemorrhaged their best people. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he promised amnesty and that proved to be true to get them back. Right. That but, was smart uh, on his part. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about Victorine. All right. So in yeah. your title is that she's the force behind the family. So can you explain a little bit about how she is? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, the, the title by which, um, I copyrighted it was the influential life of Victorine Dupont um, originally. That's what, you know, I, when I finally was done, I realized this, this woman's influence was amazing, not only on her family, but on the entire community in which she lived in several ways, but primarily educationally, morally, spiritually, uh, health-wise, socially, um, but on her family. Uh, it was French tradition that the oldest child would be the first tutor of their siblings. Uh, and in Victorine's case, uh, she was the ideal person. She was the intellect of the family. She remained such. She, even the grandfather acknowledged that she was the grammarian of the family, he called her. Uh, and she was insatiable in terms of her desire to learn, even as a young child. And uh, so she was well-suited uh, by birth order and by her historical position, she was the only sibling old enough to remember, have clear memories of France. And so she's also the one that really adopted the family motto, which uh, Pierre called rectitudine sto, means upright I stand. And that was Victorine. She, uh, doing the right thing was like a theme of her life. And, um, and so her influence, because uh, especially on the American-born um, DuPonts, which uh, four were born in France, one died only after two days, um, uh, and four were born in America. So the age disparity uh, presented this uh, maternal aspect to her tutelage because there was 24 years between her and the youngest son. Um, and, uh, and so it was significant in terms of um, the age disparity. Um, and so her tutelage, uh, and by this time, she had gone to school in Philadelphia. Madame Rivardi Seminary for Young Ladies, a very important uh, school. That's a story in itself. And uh, 
but she became Madame Rivardi's top student and maintained that uh, position uh, for uh, the remainder of the time that she was there and uh, at the school. So she was this unusual uh, intellect within the family. So she provides the education not only for her siblings, but for her nieces, nephews, and cousins as well. Uh, so her impact was not so much to do with the company, but in the character of those who would later be uh, leaders within the company. Uh, and uh, even Alexis, who uh, the youngest one, he was only 12 years old when, uh, when, her, when their mother did. And so Victorine is 24 years older than he is. And uh, on his deathbed, he, uh, he was actually blown up in the mills. He died at the age of 41. But on his deathbed, he turned to her and said, you have been a mother to me. And uh, it, it's just kind of uh, uh, encapsulates the role she had in, in each of their lives. Even the older ones, Evelina was very, uh, who was only four years removed from uh, uh, Victorine, was very dependent on her, had grown up that way. Alfred's six years. Alfred's going to be a leader of the family, but he's uh, um, uh, six years younger. But he, she prepares Alfred for his early education in Mount Seminary. Uh, and also the son of uh, Victor, Charles Arenay, is taught by her in preparation for going to school. So by the time Henry comes along and, and Alexis, they're boys. And so the influence that she, she influenced, she uh, brought to bear on their lives was, uh, was very significant. And it carried throughout life. The book make, uh, presents several instances where even as adults, uh, uh, Victorine's influence uh, came, came to bear on their lives in various ways. Yeah. So, you know, there's, I love these, there's two really big turning points um, throughout the book of the story of her marriage mm -hmm. and the story of her spiritual journey. And yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those two big themes throughout her life. That's a very good question, Jane, because uh, it's a good observation because it was those two things that changed the trajectory of her life uh, with Ferdinand. Uh, they were childhood friends. You know, they grew up together at, on the on the Brandywine Creek, um, and uh, they watched uh, Eleutherian Mills being built. You know, they would be clamoring through the hills as uh, these young kids, ten years old, and uh, and so they had this very unpretentious friendship, which by the time they're in their teens, had evolved into more of a uh, affection for each other. Victorine wouldn't have called it a romance at that point, but uh, they were definitely heading in that direction. And um, and the, and if there was anybody in each of their lives that uh, uh, they were thinking of in a romantic way, it was each other. Um, he, uh, he, he winds up going to school in Baltimore, St. Mary's, uh, with a good friend of his. And um, she winds up going to Madame Rivardi's where Ferdinand's sisters are going. They were the ones who first alerted her to the school, and uh, she was thrilled to be going there because Madame Rivardi uh, taught her the things she wanted to be taught rather than just finishing skills, which is what she had learned in Wilmington under another French refugee named Madame Capron, but where her emphasis was on uh, finishing skills, you know, music, embroidery, uh, that, that did not interest uh, Victorine that much. Victorine could play the piano, she could draw, she could dance, 
but she was, she had this hunger for knowledge. And uh, so she really, she. And she really she loves said, science. She loves botany. She loves birds. She loves the natural world. You know, she has so. this very, and loves medicine. Like I kept thinking yeah. about these things being sort of tied together. Yeah, they are. And that, that opens up another field we can talk about. But regarding Ferdinand, she, the long and short of it is, is they wind up getting married. Uh, he goes to France for three years. Uh, she doesn't commit to him. There's a kind of a uh, really a romantic uh, uh, section there where he leaves, he, but he, he proposes to her before he leaves for France. And she turns him down because she's not ready. And there's a couple of main reasons for that. But, um, and she thought his proposal was premature. Unfortunately, it made his father think that she had been playing him for a fool all that time. And, uh, and that did not help the relationship with the, between the two fathers, which was already beginning to go south. But, um, but Ferdinand um, hears that she rejected another suitor of hers who was uh, <clears throat> considerably older than she was, but um, she gave the other guy a firm no and made no promises to Ferdinand, but uh, he knew that he was coming back in two years. It extended to three years, which really frustrated him. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's an interesting entanglement in France. He supposedly comes back engaged to one of his cousins. Uh, and uh, the story gets into that a little bit, but he's not back a month or two and he and Victorine are uh, reunited. Victorine realizes she loves him, wants to marry him. And they're married uh, shortly after he returns. Um, he dies two and a half months later of uh, rheumatic fever, what they called at that time inflammatory rheumatism. And there's a very descriptive, uh, one of the friends of the Baudouis who was a uh, very familiar with medicine, um, uh, writes a letter describing his ailment uh, to a T. So we have a lot of information there. Uh, Victorine goes into a, a spiral. There is some evidence that she was pregnant at the time that he died and miscarried. Um, uh, she's losing weight. She gets very depressed. But she had, uh, in tying in her faith at this point, she had three friends from Madame Rivardi's who were very strong Christians. And it's through the influence, especially of the fat family of uh, Rebecca Ralston. Uh, her mother, Rebecca's mother was a daughter of Matthew Clarkson, who had been a mayor of Philadelphia, noted for a Christian faith. Her father is Robert Ralston, who has this very successful import-export business. So they're very well-to-do, but he's a very strong Christian. And out of his home, the Philadelphia Bible Society gets started. Sarah starts four projects in the city geared towards helping women, indigenous women, um, uh, indigent women, just indigent women, um, a uh, Bible society for women, uh, and another um, uh, for homeless, uh, for homeless and shelterless women. She also starts the first orphanage in the city of Philadelphia. So Victorine has a front row seat of all these uh, uh, projects that were really not women's domain at that time. It was Sarah's place in society that enabled her without questions being asked uh, 
if she wants to go ahead and do it, she can do it. Um, but it was all selfless. It was all towards the betterment of, um, there's a story that should be told of Sarah Ralston's. Mm -hmm. She has a great impact on Victorine because Victorine has a front row seat to uh, Sarah's life because she was often in her home. And she's kind of became a role model to Victorine. During this time, Victorine is introduced to Christianity uh, by these strong Christian friends and families. And for her, it's a, it's a long process of inquiry. You know, she's very intelligent, but she's been influenced by her father and grandfather uh, towards a deistical kind of viewpoint. But uh, it was being with Christians and observing their lives and seeing the, the reality of their faith that she's introduced to the Bible. And uh, she begins to study the Bible. Uh, of course, you know, it's- Right, yeah, it's she another... takes an intellectual approach to it. Yes. And through that, she realizes uh, the truth of the, uh, the Christian gospel and, and gives her heart to Christ at a very early age. So by the time Ferdinand dies, she's still a very young Christian, but she has turned to her faith for consolation. And um, her friends keep appealing to her to uh, become resigned to God's sovereignty, but his love and goodness. And that was a very important thing in 19th century. Uh, uh, she's born during the middle of the second, uh, she's, she's in, not born during, she's um, in America at the peak of the second great awakening. So the Christian influence has a strong bearing on the family, uh, not the mother, not the father and the grandfather, but on Victorine. And it's Victorine who now is the tutor and all of this is coinciding with the tutelage of the other siblings. So, her, and the death of her husband. So, do you think that that do you think this was also kind of offered her comfort that she needed? Uh, yeah, she she was uh, really incapacitated for the first, I'd say, six months. They even feared for her life. Um, her friend, you can tell by some of the letters from her friends that they fear that not that she would take her life, but as I say in the book, that she wouldn't lift her hand in defense of of it either you know yeah. she was just just blown despairing away she was just in total yeah. despair yeah total yeah and it was it was deep and it was dark very dark place but her friends get her through it she winds up going to long branch in august I, I caught your enthusiasm for a new jersey site oh yeah i love that you know like some good long branch story you know it was the place that people came for help and if they were, you know, they believed going to the sea was healthy. And even um, the Grimke sisters, who were famous abolitionists at this time also, came, their father was ill and he came to Long Branch. And uh, so they visited too. So Long Branch kind of, it's so fun to me that they, Monmouth County pops up in your story. Um, I may be place wrong. for Victorine. I may be wrong about this, but I think President Garfield was sent there. At, at, after his assassination, hoping absolutely, he died there. Yeah, and uh, and Grant too. Grant took the uh, when Pre President Grant, when he was ill, sat on the porch of his house in Long Branch and wrote his memoirs. You know, wow. uh, when he was suffering. Wow. So yeah, so it was looked at as like a health resort. Yeah, and that was uh, the Baudouin family and friends got her there for for two weeks. She was very reluctant to go at first. Um, but very grateful that she had went because it was a turning point in her recovery. 
Um, yeah. And but you know, that so was August. It, yeah. So you that know, eight I, months. I, Victorine is such an uh, such an important member of her community. You know, not just the family, but the entire community yeah. of the uh, the estate, the factory, the entire area as a real, she finds herself as a leader of the yeah. school. And you think about all the lives she touched yeah. by teaching people how to read, teaching people appreciation for religion and to be a visiting nurse yeah. to everyone. Yeah. yeah, to the entire community. Um, Cause uh, no working communities was, was a tough life. Uh, a lot of them were, were scraping by, they depended on the mills for their livelihood. Um, Victorine notes that many of the parents were ill-equipped to educate their children. They themselves had not received the education. They had a trade. They were hard workers, um, but they didn't have the wherewithal to really give their children an education and the community had no schools. Uh, she did not start this school. It was started by a mill owner named uh, John Seidel, uh, but he, his mill gets wiped out in the flood of uh, 1822 and he leaves the area. And um, the question now is who's going to take over? Because uh, it very well could have died at that point. He was the, uh, the one who had gotten it started and he was the one who superintended along with his nephew, James. James wasn't in a position to superintend it. And so who was going to give up their time for, for no pay who had the intellectual capacity, compassion, and the ability to teach. It was only one person and the whole community knew it. And uh, so even the mill owners came to her and, and uh, came, they actually came to approach her father first and asked if she would be willing. And so she's presented with this opportunity. Um, and, you know, given her station in life, she did not have to give up all the work that would be entailed in superintending a school, which didn't just take place on a Sunday morning for, for the one preparing it. Um, but she gives the next 45 years of her life to that endeavor, uh, surrenders it. You know, yeah. here's this woman of high, high intellect teaching children the basics, and she does it for the remainder of her life. And the main reason is she loved them. Yeah. And, uh, and it was a place to serve. It was a, it, it gave the purpose and meaning of her life that even though the trajectory of her life was changed by Ferdinand's death, she wound up the mother of many children. Yes. And, you know, the uh, and a, a sign of how respected she was and admired is how many generations and people in the family name their children Victorine in her honor. Yeah, I had a whole list of them but that wound up on the cutting room floor but uh, <laughs> but it seems like a great many you know I didn't were, count them yeah. but it yeah. seemed by the end of the book that there were a great many nieces nephews you know all around uh the community who were named Victorine and clearly as a sign of respect um and uh, admiration for her and and what she had brought to their community it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting theme in women's history in general, I think, as a women's history teacher, that how much women do for their communities, how much they don't, you know, they don't do it for their own aggrandizement or fame, yeah. but they do it as a sense of service to others. And it's a really, uh, I think, an extremely admirable story to tell it how is. she 
what she does for these people. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, this may have ended up in the edits of your book also, but how many people in the community who were taught by her go on to also give back and also to serve and have great lives because of what she gave them in terms of education and guidance and mentorship. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, I, I, I tried my best to find some famous person that came out of it, but, um, uh, but the impact, uh, like the letters that I use at the end from many of the scholars who are now in the Civil War, she died on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, she receives many letters posthumously uh, uh, about the impact she had made on their lives. Um, many of the children, the words that come out about Victorine were that she was kind, gentle, uh, and they remember the Sunday school as adults as the happiest moments of their life. They mm -hmm. all, they, uh, a theme seems to be in their letters that they just, even those that had good lives, look back at that as the happiest period of their life was the oh wow that's really saying yeah. something you know yeah. and, and your book really is uh it's really wonderful because it starts with the french revolution goes through the war of 1812 which we didn't even get to talk about but i think mm -hmm. that the i am a was i love the story about her going to the white house meeting dolly madison and going to washington's fantastic so the war of 1812 is in there the mexican war and then yeah. ending with the uh on the eve of the civil war so we really see this woman's life but also learn about the country during this really crucial period from the end of the revolution the early republic all the way to the beginning of the civil war it's really uh, it, you did a fantastic job in in weaving those things seamlessly together thank you so congratulations, Lenny, for telling this forgotten woman's story. It's really a wonderful book. And I want to thank Leonard Spitali for joining me on the show today. Thank you for sharing Victorine's story with us. I have been talking to Leonard C. Spitali about his new book, Victorine DuPont, The Force Behind the Family, published by University of Delaware Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>